This message by Bruce Ware, titled Beholding the Glory of God's Supremacy, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the first main session at our 2004 Worship God Conference. Dr. Ware is an author, Senior Associate Dean of the Master of Divinity Program, and Associate Dean of Theology and Tradition at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, this evening, it is my enormous privilege to be able to commend to you much of what you already know, but perhaps put in in a particular perspective and light that may be fresh to your thinking about the greatness and the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the richness, the fullness that is our God. Uh, it, it is just a privilege to be able to try to paint a picture for you this evening, to, to enter this gallery and look, look at this portrait of who God is. I read a book years ago that really launched my whole adult life's uh, course in the direction that it has gone. I read this as a freshman in college, a book by A.W. Tozer entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And in this opening chapter, here's what A.W. Tozer writes. He wrote this book, by the way, in 1961. He says this, The Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. So necessary to the church is a lofty conception of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. End of quote. Well, My conclusion after reading Tozer is that what he diagnosed was correct and it has not gotten better in the 40 years since he wrote this, except for pockets within evangelicalism where God is known and exalted in in ways that truly are honoring to him. But when you look at the evangelical church broadly, what Tozer wrote then is only more true today. We need to know God. Now, I propose to you, consider this proposal. I propose to you this evening that there is one conception of God in particular, one comprehensive vision, as it were, of who God is, that is at one and the same time both the bedrock of a truly biblical, glorious, worship-inspiring view of God, yet... On the other hand, it is an understanding that is barely known among evangelical churches. Or worse, it is decried and denied outright by other popular misconceptions of God. This is a very sad case where my proposal to you is there is an understanding of God from Scripture 
that is central to who God is, central to our worship, central to our understanding who we are before Him, and yet we don't know it or we have it wrong. What shall we do? Well, my goodness, my, my friends, what we must do is go back to God's Word and learn from God. This is His self-revelation, is it not? Learn from Him what He has told us. This fundamental conception I'm going to present to you this evening in this portrait that centers around one attribute of God in particular that is little discussed among us in our evangelical circles. This attribute is God's self-sufficiency. God's self-sufficiency. And what I'm going to do in the, in the time that I have this evening is, first of all, define this term for you so we know what it is we're thinking about. Then we're going to spend a good bit of our time looking at passages of Scripture to see from Scripture that, in fact, this is how God has presented himself to us as a self, fully self-sufficient God. And then I want to spend time at the end, after we've looked at that, at a number of implications and applications to our lives that uh, I, I trust will be deeply meaningful to us. So first, a definition of divine self-sufficiency. I define it this way, that God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally Every quality in infinite measure. Now you can say this definition negatively as well. That the easy way to put it is God has no needs for anything apart from who he is as God. God has no need for anything apart from who he is as God. Why doesn't he have needs for anything other than who he is? Because he possesses within himself Every quality that there is, is found in God himself. Think of what this definition is proposing. It says that God possesses every quality that is. Imagine it. All beauty. All goodness. All knowledge. All wisdom. All power. All truth is found in God. There is no quality of any kind that exists apart from God. They all exist within God. And he possesses these qualities within himself intrinsically. Now that word is important because we possess qualities, don't we? We have a certain amount of truth, a certain amount of, of goodness, a certain amount of, of uh, wisdom, and so on. We have these qualities, but how do we have these qualities? In what respect do we possess them? Well, the, the fact is, we possess them derivatively. That is, every quality we have is derived from someone giving them to us. I mean, Job was actually absolutely right when he said, naked I have come from my mother's womb, naked I will go back to the ground. All that I have I have received from the Lord. Everything we have is derived. But in God, every quality that he possesses, he possesses by virtue of his essential nature 
possessing those qualities. It is his nature to be good, his nature to be holy, his nature to be beautiful. Every quality is his intrinsically, none of them derivatively. Third, notice that God possesses these qualities eternally. That is, there never has been a time in the past, never will be in the future, where God lacks any of these qualities. They are all His, and they're all His forever. And finally, He possesses these qualities to what degree? In infinite measure. There is no boundary, no, no, no fence line. No limitation or restriction that you can place upon the qualities that are true of God. His wisdom, His goodness, His love, His truth, His knowledge, they are all infinite in measure. God possesses within Himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. What an incredible God! This is. Now, is this view taught in Scripture? Indeed it is. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me. I know it may be difficult for some of you taking notes, uh, but uh, it would be helpful if you could see for yourself uh, these passages of Scripture. Turn, if you would, please, to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Beginning at verse 12 of Isaiah 40, we have the Lord through the prophet asking some rhetorical questions. And of course, you know that a rhetorical question is a question whose answer is so obvious, you don't have to give the answer. And here's what the Lord through the prophet asks in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who do you know? By the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard updated version, in case you're wondering. It's the one I've become most familiar with. And so I... I, uh, Use this. Verse 12. Who do you know, asked the Lord, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Now think of these images before we move ahead here in verse 12. Who do you know, asked the Lord, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Do you know anyone who is big enough to scoop up and hold in his hand the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, cup them in the hollow of his hand? This is how big God is. You know, one time on vacation, we, we, Jody and I are both from the West Coast, and we were vacationing at Cannon Beach, Oregon, one of the most beautiful places. Uh, and uh, we had rented a cabin right on the beach. And at that time, our girls were, were pretty young. We have two girls who are now 21 and 17. At least they will be in a couple weeks. But they were at this time about six and three or seven and three years old, roughly. And we were on vacation and we, I had read that morning in our devotions at our cabin from Isaiah 40. So I said to my girls, I want to do an experiment with you. Come down to the beach with me. So they, of course, are excited to do that. And uh, they came down and, and I said, now what I want you to do is stand here right at the shoreline. I'm going to go out into the water. And you remember that passage I read this morning in Isaiah 40 about how God can hold the waters in the hollow of his hand? Well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to scoop up all the water I can of the Pacific Ocean 
And I want you to stand here and watch and see how far the level of that ocean drops. <laughs> Remember, there's seven and three, you know, so it works. So they're, okay, daddy, you know, they're, they're excited to do this. So I went out there and I knelt down and scooped up the water. I said, what happened, girls? Nothing, daddy. I said, nothing. Well, let's try it again. So I said, now watch carefully. So I scooped it up. Did you see it drop? No, daddy. So I went down out of the water and got down on my knees with them and just eye leveled. I said, you know what, girls? I want you to learn a very important lesson about the difference between us and God. I mean, here I am, your daddy. And I'm, I'm a big guy, right? I mean, I was to them. I'm a big guy. And I scoop down and I scoop up all the water I can in my two hands from that ocean. And you cannot tell anything has happened. But imagine, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand so big that if it came down and scooped up the water, the entire ocean would be dry. That's how big God is. Is. Look at the next image. Who do you know, asked the Lord, who has marked off the heavens by the span? This is the distance between the tip of your thumb and little finger. He marks off the heavens by the span. Think of it. Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes, as you probably know, about... Seven minutes for the light to get from the sun to the earth. The next closest star to us after the sun, the light takes four and a half light years. That is light traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes four and a half years from the time it leaves that star to reach planet earth. That's our next door neighbor. How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy that you go out at night and see? And by the way, when you look at the stars on a starry evening away from city lights, almost every point of light you see are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. They're just our neighborhood. How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, about 10 billion stars separated by an average distance from one another of roughly 10 light years from each other, spanning out across this Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, we don't know. They are still counting. The Hubble telescope still finds more and more. The Milky Way galaxy is an average-sized galaxy with 10 billion stars, and there are literally thousands of millions of similar-sized galaxies spreading out across the universe, hundreds and thousands of light years from one another. Who do you know, asked the Lord, who can mark off the heavens by the span? How big is God? It's just incredible, isn't it? And then the next image, he... Who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure or weigh the mountains in a balance or, or the hills in a pair of scales? Who do you know, asked the Lord, who can hold scales and weigh on them the mountain ranges of the world? I'll put the Himalayas here. I'll put the Rockies over here. Weigh out the mountain ranges. God is so immense, so great, so powerful. 
So huge is God. Now the image, the, the theme changes when we come to verse 13. It's no longer the immensity and the greatness of God, but now His knowledge and wisdom. Look, verse 13. Who do you know, asked the Lord? Who has, direct, who, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Answer. What's the answer to all those rhetorical questions? Who has taught God? Who has informed God? Answer. No one. No one. God has no advisors. He doesn't need any advisors. He doesn't want any advisors. God would be denying himself to pretend to need help in making some decision because he knows it all and he knows it perfectly and his wisdom can chart out and discern the very best course of action that needs to be taken. He doesn't need anyone's help. Now, I mean, just think of the contrast here. What would you think of a president of the United States who, when he took his oath of office, the first thing he declared to people was, I will not have any advisors. I will make my decisions. I know everything I need to know to be president of the United States and govern this nation, make decisions that relate to international affairs. I'll do it on my own. Thank you. We would say of such a president... He is a fool. Why don't we say that of God? Because he has it all. He has all knowledge, all wisdom in himself. Not only does he have all knowledge and wisdom, but his moral nature, his, his nature of goodness and holiness assures that as he contemplates strategies, as he des- designs what ought to happen, Out of his very nature comes the governance, the guidance that is necessary to ensure that what is decided is best. It cannot be improved upon. Now, honestly, I think we need to remember this when we pray before the Lord. There are times when we pray with kind of the mindset that we are coming as the advisors of the Almighty. And we are telling God this important truth that He needs to understand or this very critical perspective that He doesn't quite get. And so we're here to help God understand what He needs to know in order for Him to make the decision that we know ought to be made. And my friends, you know what we need to do? We need to pray like Jesus. Is that, on the surface, does that sound like a reasonable proposal? Okay, we need to pray like Jesus. Well, how did he pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I mean, look at where he starts. The supremacy of God, the, 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 the absolute majesty, the, the, the separateness of God. Hallowed be separate. You are. You, you are above all that is in creation. You are creator. You are wise. You are knowledgeable. You are powerful. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be formed as I bring to you my ideas. No, he, he prays, thy will be done. Which means the will is already there. We, we do not 
pray for the purpose of trying to shape the will of God. We pray for the purpose of trying by the Spirit as He works within our hearts to get in tune with the will of God that is already perfect and already set. Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't this another example of it? Where He prays, Not my will, but yours be done. Now, now granted, uh, he, He was struggling And we'll talk more about this in the session tomorrow night. He was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane with obeying the Father in light of the enormity of the sacrifice that he was being called to make. No question. Why else would he pray three times, sweating as it were drops of blood, were it not for the fact that this was incredibly difficult? But in the end, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. I recognize, Father, your will is best. Your will is perfect. It cannot be improved on. I am only humble and wise before you as I seek to enter into your will and understand what that is. So, so yes, as we pray, we, we extend to God from our hearts as children do to parents, our deepest desires and longings, but we always do so with the recognition He knows best, not me. I, I would be a fool to want anything other than what God wills and has designed as best. I would be a fool to insist on something different. God needs no advisors. He knows everything. His wisdom is flawless. Okay, now let's see what this means for you and me. Read on. Verse 15. After seeing the power of God, the immensity of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God extolled. Now, verse 15, what does he say? Behold, the nations. Now get the point right here. The nations, the collective totality of humanity taken together with all of its prowess, all of its knowledge, all of its acquired wisdom, all that it has. The nations are before him like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded by him as a speck of dust on the scales. Oh, isn't that an amazing image? Or both of those are amazing images. A drop from a bucket. What would you say of the person who carried a bucket of water, brimming full bucket of water, back to the campground, and he managed to bring it back there, spilling only one drop? What would you think of that? Would you think, boy, he just, you know, lost the bucket of water? No, you would say, wow, you didn't spill anything. Pretty much. Pretty much. Because how, how significant is one drop in a bucket? And the answer is it is insignificant. It is inconsequential. Or, I love this image of a speck of dust on a scales. Imagine the scene for a moment of a, a housewife at the local supermarket standing at the deli counter getting some sliced turkey. And she, you know, asks for a pound of it and the fellow has cut it, sliced it up and he's put it on a piece of uh, wax paper and he's weighing it there and he's about to press the button and the price sticker comes out. But before he does that, she screams, hold it! And he's, well, what's the matter? Please clean the scale. There's a speck of dust on that scale and I don't want to be overcharged. I mean, you get the point, don't you? 
How much does a speck of dust weigh in? And the answer is, it doesn't. It is inconsequential. It is trivial. Now, lest you think that we still have some significance before God, because a drop from a bucket is still a drop, a speck of dust on the scale is still a speck. Keep reading. Keep reading. It gets worse, not better, for us. Actually, actually, the end of this is really for our good. But, but it's only for our good because we have been humbled as we ought. So keep reading. Behold, the nations, verse 15, are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. Imagine a little child streaming sand through their fingers at the beach. This is what God does with the islands of the world. He just plays with them, like streaming through his fingers. He lifts up islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor is beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations, here we are again, the totality of humanity brought together. The collective whole of all that we are and all that we have. The nations are as nothing before him. Okay, now, you know, we used to be a drop. We, we used to be a speck. Now we're nothing. You, you think that's as far as you could go, right? Wrong. Keep reading. The nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and void. Meaningless. The Hebrew word is zero. Wow. Now, we've got to be very, very careful here. Boy, this, this, this is crucial. In what sense are we to understand that we and, and all people and, and the nations taken as a whole are before God as less than nothing and meaningless? Does that mean, are we to understand this to mean that God doesn't care about the nations? They, they don't mean anything to him. They are nothing to me. Is that what, is this how we should interpret this? Isn't the answer to that question a resounding no? No. This is not what it means. How do we know, even from this chapter, but even more so the rest of Scripture, how do we know that God cares deeply about the nations, that they mean much to Him? How do we know this? Well, the supreme example, of course, is the cross, don't we? Christ came, you remember Revelation 5, 9? He purchased for God with His blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And of course, go back to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And God promised that through Abraham, all the what would be blessed? The nations. All the nations would be blessed. And all you have to do is keep reading in Isaiah 40. And you come to the end of the chapter. Just, just look down. And we come down to verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. The justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. But now, why does he elevate the understanding of God, the power of God, the greatness of God? Why? Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary 
To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. So isn't it clear, even from this chapter, that when he says the nations are less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean, I don't care about the nations. He cares enormously. And that he does ought to be for us utterly incredible. In light, of the, in light of what it does mean. So what does it mean when God says to us, to all of the nations, to all peoples, He says to us, you, you are before me as less than nothing and meaningless. Have you figured it out what it means? In comparison to the richness, the greatness, the fullness, the, the, the infinite reservoir of my power, My wisdom, my knowledge, what do you have that could contribute anything to me? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. What knowledge can we add to God's knowledge? None. What power can we add to God's power? None. What wisdom can we add to God's wisdom? None. What greatness, what riches can we add to God's greatness and riches? And the answer is none. He has it all. In comparison to God and His greatness and richness, we are before Him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, of course, this is where we're going at the end of this thing. I'm tipping my hand here early. But isn't it then incredible that he doesn't then go on to say, therefore, I don't care about you because you contribute nothing to me. Therefore, you mean nothing to me. I, I don't care about you. Isn't it amazing that the end of the chapter is what it is, that the whole point of this, the whole point of exalting the greatness, the supremacy, the power, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how vast it is. The whole point of that is to say, so here is God for you. When you are weak, he is strong. When you lack knowledge, he knows it all. The whole point of it is to be for our benefit. Yes, he is self-sufficient. He does, he possesses within himself all of these qualities. There's no quality that stands outside of God himself. Let's look at another passage. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, another remarkable declaration of God's self-sufficiency in a very different sort of a context. Psalm 50. Now in this psalm, if we had time to look at it more carefully, you would see that Israel is on trial before God. And God is not only the judge of Israel, which he is, but he's also the prosecuting attorney. And he's also the star witness. You know, it's an amazing thing. God is judge, prosecuting attorney, star witness against his people. And he is holding them accountable for a grievous offense. And of course, we wonder as we begin reading this psalm, what is it that Israel has done that is so offensive? Well, look with me. Pick up with me at verse 6. 
Verse 6, he calls the heavens and the earth to bear witness as well. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Stop. Now, wait a minute. Israel is on trial. They're in big trouble before God. They have committed a horrible offense that he's holding them accountable for. But it's at a time period in Israel's history, which actually was quite rare, where they were keeping the Levitical law. They were bringing sacrifices. This is not one of the many, many times when they had completely forsaken the sacrificial system. They were coming to church. They were putting money in the offering plate. It looked pretty good. I mean, you would think these are the good days in Israel. Ah, but not so. Keep reading. Let me read verse 8 again so you get the point. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. You're doing this as you're supposed to. But verse 9, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Verse 13, here is the key. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Okay, stop here. Here's what's going on. Israel had adopted, that is the people of God, had adopted a theology of worship patterned after the pagan religions that surrounded Israel in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. Now, this was uniformly the case, that in all of these ancient Near Eastern religions, they believed that as they brought sacrifices to their gods, they did so because the gods needed what they had to bring them. The gods were literally hungry. And the gods would eat the sacrifice, drink the blood, their bellies would be filled, they would no longer be thirsty, and now as satisfied deities, having been benefited by us, they then would, in kind, show favor upon the people. So, here's how it worked in the ancient Near Eastern world. We're good to God, and so He's good to us. We give to God what He needs, and so God gives to us what we need. That's how the theology of worship worked in the ancient Near Eastern religions and Israel had bought into the same understanding regarding Yahweh. And this to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, was absolutely offensive. They were on trial for thinking of Him the way the pagan nations thought of their gods as needy, helpless gods needing the help of of the people who would come. So look again, go back with me at verse 9 and read again now with that understanding. God says to them, verse 9, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. In other words, if you're coming to church Sunday morning, putting money in the offering plate, thinking you're doing me a big favor, you're really helping me out because I'm really stuck until you give your money, well then, keep it. Don't bring it, if that's the case. If you're thinking, somehow, I need what you're bringing, I've got news for you. I don't want it. 
I will take no young bull out of your house, no male goats out of your fold. Why, verse 10? For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, isn't the if telling? If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. God does not need anything from us. We never contribute something to God that He previously lacked. Why is that? Because He has it all. Now, here's the cure. Here's the solution to this mis guided theology of worship that was taking place in Israel. Here it is in a very simple phrase in verse 14. What shall they do then? Offer to God, you see it? A sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now think about it, thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving imply about us? If we're thankful, why is that? We're we're thankful... Because we have received something that is beneficial. As some of you received gifts this evening. You should be thankful. Even though you are the oldest or youngest or came the furthest or whatever. I mean, you you should be thankful. You didn't deserve those things. They were gifts. Okay, if, if if you are thankful, that betrays the fact that you are recipient of favor. And if you are, and if you thank another, that means what of them? They are the giver of the favor, the giver of the gift. So here's the lesson, my friends. The dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. The dependency relationship between God and the world runs one way. We depend upon God. We're the ones who say thank you to God. We depend upon God how much? Absolutely everything. We'll see in another passage. We'll look at in a moment here. We depend on him for life and breath and all things. Well, that kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? So how much do we depend upon God? For absolutely everything. How much does he depend upon us? Not at all. Not at all. It's humbling, isn't it? But you know what? We live in a culture. I mean, the reason this sounds so odd to our ears, because we live in a culture that magnifies the significance of human beings and usually does so at the expense of the glory of God. It is all over evangelicalism. I mean, even though on the screen we saw it's not about me, that's not the message in most of our churches. It rather is much about me and the whole self-esteem movement that's out there, self-actualization, self-importance. Everything we read in in, in the media, everything that we we hear in our schools, it, it just feeds this notion of our significance and it belittles God. Well, God wants to go on record. I don't need you. And my friends, there is... Uh, honestly, no more important truth to take to heart than the truth that God has it all and I depend upon Him for everything. Let's look at another passage. One more 
Acts 17 in the New Testament, Acts 17, which really is in many ways the most significant single text that announces the self-sufficiency of God. Paul is in Athens. You can pick this up at verse 16 of Acts 17. Paul is in Athens waiting for friends to join him. And while he's waiting there, you know, this, this is, it's not Paul's style to check into the local Best Western, put his feet up, see what's on the tube. You know, he just does not do that. He is out in the streets seeing what the people are, are, are believing and saying, uh, sharing the gospel of Christ. And, and as he does this, the, the irony of this is the people in Athens prided themselves in being the, the most religious people in the world. They had in the city of Athens altars and shrines and temples and inscriptions to every known deity. And in case they missed one, you can see this in verse 23, they even had an inscription to an unknown God. You know, and the irony of this is the one God they didn't know was the true and living God. So here Paul is invited to come to the Areopagus. I've been there one time in my life. I was in Athens, went to this place, imagined the scene where Paul was brought there before these philosophers and religious leaders, and he was asked to tell them who God is. So here is what he says, verse 24, 25. Look at these words. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, look at it, as though he needed anything. There's self-sufficiency. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Okay, now there are three arguments here. The heart of this statement about God is his self-sufficiency. It's right there in the middle of verses 24 and 25. But he grounds the self-sufficiency of God with three arguments. Did you see them? The first one is the beginning of verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. He grounds self-sufficiency with the doctrine of creation. Creation, of which we'll hear more tomorrow. This extremely important doctrine. The older I get as a Christian, the more I think about these things as a theologian, the more I realize how important the doctrine of creation is. What, now, now, in what sense does creation, the God who made the world and all things in it, how does that support God's self-sufficiency? Do you see it? Well, in what sense does God create? What, what, what do we mean in Christian theology when we talk about God as creator? Well, we, we understand that God created the world out of nothing. Perhaps you've heard the Latin phrase, ex nihilo. God creates the world from, from, not from existing materials because there were no existing materials. He brings into existence all the materials that there are. He brings into existence everything that is in the created order. As he speaks, it comes into being by his creative word. More on that tomorrow night. There, there, there is this, this marvelous truth that God alone exists eternally. And everything else exists in finite time. There's a beginning point to the universe. That is huge in, in importance. That, that means that only God exists apart from everything else. So how does the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, support self-sufficiency? Can you see it? Are you beginning to see it? 
Because if God brought into being all that is, it means that God is God apart from everything else. He has no dependency on everything else because he exists eternally as God apart from everything else. Furthermore, everything that is here owes its existence and every quality that it has to him. How does it have what it has? Answer, God gave it to it. How how does it have life? How does it have knowledge? How does it have certain abilities or gifts? How does it have certain properties? How does it have these attributes? Because God granted it to it. God gave to everything that is all of the qualities that are there. And isn't this why the heavens declare the glory of God? Because the heavens are, as it were, the, the handprint of God manifest in physical, visible form. God's wisdom that is inherently God's, intrinsically God's eternally. Now, God's wisdom manifests physically, visibly in the created order. God's power manifests physically, visibly. God's beauty manifests. God's truth manifests physically, visibly. So the world, the universe, redounds to the glory of God. That's the first argument. God created all, and therefore God stands apart from all, independent, eternally existing, as God, not needing the world. Second argument, not only does he say the God who made the world and all things in it, but then since he is Lord of heaven and earth... Ah, this harkens back to Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. How much does God own? What, what, uh, what does his portfolio look like? He owns everything. You know, you know, Christian people, you know, we, we think of the, the Lord's Day, as important as that concept is. I don't want to minimize it for a moment, but, but it can convey the notion that the, uh, the other six days of the week are mine, thank you. And then this Lord's Day is the day that I, I give to the Lord in service to Him. But come Monday morning, it's mine, buddy. You know, and this, this is just, we, we know this is wrong, don't we? He owns all those days. He owns everything about us. Our tithing, we can do the same thing. 10%, that is those who give that much. Goodness, the statistics are just pitiful, aren't they? Shame on us, Christians. Shame on us for not trusting God with our money by hoarding instead of giving. It's a little aside but, but let's, just, let's just pretend for a moment. Let's just pretend that we give 10%. We give 10 And then we think, ah, oh, the other 90%, hey, that's mine to spend as I want to. No, you know what? It's all His. All His. Every penny, every minute, every relationship, everything. The world is mine and all it contains. So God is Lord of heaven and earth. There's nothing we could give to Him that is not His. What, what, could, what could we contribute? So you put your money in the offering plate. You think you're doing God a big favor by helping him out. You know what? It's already his. He, he could call on it like that. Could he not? It's already, so the second argument, he's not only creator, but he's ruler. 
And then the third argument that supports God's self-sufficiency comes at the end of verse 25. After he has said he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now your translations may say everything, but it's the same Greek word used twice. He gives to all people all things. You know what? That is comprehensive. That is entirely inclusive. There's nothing left out in terms of who is given gifts and what they are given. He gives to all people all things. We owe to God everything because it's all His. It's all His gift. There is nothing we have that we can claim ownership of that is ours I did it. You know, this, and honestly, this is why this doctrine is little spoken of in our churches. Why it, why it rubs against us, because it rubs against our sin nature that wants to found our self-significance ourselves, instead of founding our significance in being attached to God who is infinitely significant. So yes, it really is all about Him. It really is. It's not about me. It really is all about Him. And where does our significance come? In the privilege of being connected, not because I'm wise, but because He's got infinite wisdom and I'm connected to the One who shares graciously, generously, bountifully of His wisdom with me. That, that's where, where our significance lies. So he, he gives to us life and breath and all things. Isn't this testified by other passages? Think, for example, you don't need to turn to it, but 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul says to the Corinthians, who, as you know, struggled with pride. They thought they were hot stuff with the gifts they were given. You, you realize that in that church. And what does he say to them? He asks them this question. What do you have that you've not received? Hmm. Rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? A question whose answer is so obvious, you don't need to give the answer. What do you have that you've not received? Answer, nothing. Everything I have, I've received. So then he goes on and he says, so if you have received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Wow. He gives us everything. Or James 1.17, every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift is from where? From the Father above, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. turning. Every good and perfect gift from Him. So yes, He is the creator of all, the ruler of all, and the giver of all. And hence, these three arguments buttress the fact that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He is self-sufficient. Let's think together of implications now of this doctrine. First of all, just sort of some summary implications of things we've already seen Summary implications concerning God and our relationship to Him. Because God is infinitely full, infinitely rich, infinitely satisfied, if you will, infinitely self-sufficient, consider the following. 
one, God does not need the glorious creation that he has made. He does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or in part, including us. He doesn't need anything that he has made. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us as his creatures. Second, God does not need anything from us. He needs no help, no gifts, no service, no fellowship. He needs nothing from us. Though he commands our obedience, more on this in a moment, he commands our service, yet he does not need anything that he commands us to give him. Third, God cannot receive anything from us that is not previously, rightfully, and entirely His and His alone. He cannot receive anything from us that is not previously, rightly, and entirely His and His alone. In fact, this, this is so much the case that God is both dishonored, remember Psalm 50? Dishonored and offended when we approach Him as if He needs what we have to bring Him. As if we can give Him something that He lacks. This dishonors God. It assumes God isn't fully rich because I have something He needs, something He lacks. And so God is actually deficient to the degree to which I contribute to what he needs. This dishonors God. Fourth, every good and perfect gift necessarily is from him and him alone. Every good and perfect gift necessarily is from him and him alone. Imagine this. There is no true thought, no good work, No discerning word, no talent, no ability, no gifting that is not from him. Every quality that exists in creation and in your lives and mine is there at all and is there to the scope and extent that it is only because God in his grace and kindness has granted it to us. While God possesses all that he has intrinsically, in contrast, anything we have, all that we have, is possessed derivatively. We owe him everything for all that we have and enjoy. Fifth, God alone is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, and adoration, and love, and obedience, and worship. Can you see better? I hope and pray. Can you see better? Why it is true that God alone deserves our worship, deserves worship of the created order. Why does God deserve this? Because He alone possesses what is worthy Ought we not worship what is worthy of worship? Ought we not honor what is honorable? Ought we not praise what is praiseworthy? Ought we not love what ought to be loved because of its beauty and goodness 
and wisdom. Where is this? Where, where is honor? Where is worth? Where is beauty? Where are these qualities? Answer, they are all in infinite measure, intrinsically, eternally possessed by God. There is no one else, no place else, nowhere else where these qualities are possessed intrinsically. They're only there anywhere else because God in His grace and kindness overflowed, showed of Himself in granting something of His infinite, intrinsic wisdom, goodness, love, and so on. He alone is worthy. Now, finally, questions. I have five questions that I want to ask and answer with you. That if you have been thinking with me, I bet you're asking these. Uh, These are questions just that beg, beg to be answered in light of this particular understanding of God. Five questions. Here is the first one. If God is self-sufficient, if He doesn't need the creation, if He doesn't need us, why are we here? What is our purpose? Now, I can remember very clearly a fifth grade boys Sunday school class that I was in as a boy growing up in a Baptist church. It was a very good church in most respects. This one story that I'm about to tell you, don't think the church as a whole was like this. It was a very good church in most respects. But it's a fifth grade boy Sunday school class. Imagine the scene, you know, cinder block walls, basement of the church, uh, spit wads, rubber bands, paper clips. I mean, you can, you can picture it. Fifth grade boys, okay. And, uh, and amazingly, a moment came in that class when I and most of us paid attention because one of my friends asked the teacher this question. She said, why are we here? Why, why did God create us? And here's what my teacher answered in that fifth grade boys class. She said, you know, because uh, before we were created, God, God was all by himself. He was lonely. He had no one to talk to, uh, no one to have fellowship with. And, and, and honestly, he, he just craved that, that there would be some other Persons like himself, you know, with minds and emotions and will that that he could have fellowship with and that would fill this emptiness in his heart. And that's why he made us is to is to have fellowship with God and and uh, and and give to him what he longed for in his own heart and soul. Now, I heard that answer to that question that day and I thought, wow, this is great. This is cool. I mean, I'm here because God needs me. Uh, I, I'm here to help him out. You know, I, I'm here to fill the emptiness in God. I, I, I'm here, I'm here to, to try to do what I can do, you know, to, to give what I can give to help God. And, and, you know, it's amazing. Most of what I heard from the pulpit and, and from calls to service and missions only reinforced this notion. Because you would hear things along the lines of, you know, there are people out there in the world who have never heard of Christ, and God wants to save them, but He can't save them unless you go. Which, of course, again, is poor God. Poor God, you know, I mean, just, wow, don't you want to help Him out? I mean, don't you have a heart here, you know? And... and, (laughs) 
Really, I mean, the guy, the guy has the best of motives. He wants to do what's best for people. But, but you know what? It's up to us. It's all about us. <laughs> My teacher didn't realize what I came to realize later. And that is the answer she gave on that day in that fifth grade boys Sunday school class was nothing short of blasphemy. It is so, so wrong. It is so demeaning to God. Do you know what it does? It turns the God-creature relationship on its head. Because God is giver. God is provider. God is helper. God is strength. God, God is the one who meets our needs. But what happens in this? We become the giver to God. We become the resource for poor God. Poor, needy God. And Isn't it good? We're the benefactors. We're the rich and full ones who give to poor, needy God to help him out. It makes us gods. And it is wrong. God will not tolerate this notion. My glory, Isaiah 42, 8. I will not share with another. So what is the answer then to the question? Why are we here? My friends... The answer is so incredible, it's hard for me to say it. It's hard hard for me to share because it is so precious and so great and so glorious. But here is my best attempt to share it with you. Why are we here? Not because God is needy and empty and wants us to help him out. Rather, God is rich, full, infinitely possessing of everything. Quality. He's not lonely. You know what the answer to that problem is theologically? The Trinity. The Trinity. I'm going to talk about the Trinity tomorrow night with you. The Trinity. God is Father, Son, Spirit in social relationship. Fellowship that is intrinsic to the one God. One and three. God is not lonely. He is rich and full and gloriously happy in himself. He does not need a creation. So why are we here? In particular, I have in mind, why are we believers here? Why did God create us? Why did he make us? Here's the answer. Though he doesn't need us, he loves us. And in his love for us, he wants to share of the infinite fullness that is his poured out into our lives so that we possess in finite measure what is true of God infinitely. We possess in finite measure His wisdom, His goodness, His holiness, His truth. His his qualities now fill our lives So that we can experience in finite measure what God experiences infinitely. God created for the purpose of overflowing, sharing the bounty, not to be granted something he lacks. God is giver to all life and breath and all things. So why are we here? What is our purpose? The answer is... We are here, our purpose is to be filled with God. 
To, to partake of his nature. Think of Peter. Take, partake of his nature. To, to be the recipients of his attributes in finite measure filling our lives. He wants us to experience the fullness of joy and blessing that we can as his human beings that he knows in infinite measure. Second question. Why, if God doesn't need anything from us, why does he demand our obedience? Why does he demand that we follow in his ways? And by the way, he does, doesn't he? We, we live in a culture that despises the notion of authority. But God is authority over his people. And by the way, he establishes other authorities too. And they're good as God designed them to be. But God is supreme authority. He commands his people to obey. Why does he do this? Well, the answer is not that God is interesting in squelching our happiness. It is not that God is some kind of cosmic scrooge, that God is interested in minimizing our enjoyment in life. It is rather this. God commands, demands our obedience because he knows that there is only one path that leads to life. And he loves us too much to permit us to tolerate the notion that joy can be found anywhere else than in the one place alone it can be found, namely, in him. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, talks about the commandments of God, the demands of God upon us. And here's what he says. He says, those divine demands, which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we would want to go if we knew what we wanted. So they're not, they're not the demands of a despot. They are the pleas, the demands of a perfect lover who wants his people to enter into the fullness of life, fullness of joy, and that fullness of joy is found in one way, by obeying the commandments of God. Third question, why does God enlist our service? Why does he enlist our service? I mean, remember Acts 17, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And yet Psalm 100 verse 2, we're supposed to enter the gates of the Lord with thanksgiving and, and, to, uh, and, and in joyful service to him. How in the world do we put these together? Serve the Lord with gladness, but he's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Here's how it works. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need me here tonight doing what I'm doing. Although I know he called me. <clears throat> I, I, I know that he has purposes to accomplish in this. In, in your lives and in mine, he has purposes to accomplish. But he doesn't need me to do this. Do you know that he could accomplish those purposes in you by himself unilaterally? And if you don't believe that he's going to do this in the end, when we see Christ, do you remember 1 John 3, 2? We will be like him because we will see him as he is just like that. It will be done. And who will have done it? God unilaterally. He just will do it. And you know what? He could do it the whole way himself. He doesn't need our help. 
He doesn't need missionaries to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard. He didn't have to design it this way. He's God. He's omnipotent. Don't you think he could come up with some way? I mean, if you were omnipotent, couldn't you come up with some way to get to those people who have never heard of Christ? You could whisper in their ears. You could write it in the sky. You, 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 you could do it in a zillion different ways. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our service. So why enlist our service? And here's the answer. It's incredible. Though he doesn't need our service... He calls us into service in order to experience the privilege of participating with Him in His work of grace and ministry in the lives of others. He calls us into service for the privilege, the privilege of participating with Him in His work of grace and ministry in the hearts and lives of others. God is so shareful. He is not stingy. He is lavish in sharing. And here is one of the most amazing ways in which He shares. Do you think He cares about His work being accomplished? Goodness, of course he does. He cares. I mean, I, I just think of myself working on some project in the basement, you know, and I, I tend to be sort of perfectionistic. I remember when my girls were little and they wanted to come down and help. Frankly, I didn't want their help because I wanted to do it my way, which, of course, was the right way. You know, so, but here is God. He does not have this attitude. He doesn't say, I, I'll do it myself. Thank you. He could. But he didn't. Instead, he calls us, equips us, empowers us so that we might be the recipients of his grace and then the conduits of his grace, his ministry, his truth, his love, his work accomplished through us in the lives of others. What amazing privilege. Fourth, why prayer? Why prayer? Why does God call us to pray? I mean, remember, He doesn't learn anything from us. We, we don't advise Him. So why does He call us to pray? And here's the answer. <clears throat> God designed prayer not because it in any way influences what He does. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get in line with His will, not us shaping His will. So God calls us to pray not to not to influence his will, not to shape his will, but rather for us to be drawn into relationship with him. It is an instrument, a mechanism of relationship by which we trust God, look to God, hope in God, uh, ask God for help. And as the Spirit works in us to pray for things that God knows he wants to accomplish, we anticipate those things happening. And when God acts, then we give him praise for the work that he has done. Prayer is a mechanism for relationship, bringing us in. So, so we're not on the sidelines. I mean, he could just do it. He could just say, keep your mouth shut. Just watch. I'll just do it. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, come on, come on, come to me. Talk with me. Relate with me. Give me your prayers. Give me your earnest desires. And your Father who cares for you, remember, He knows already before we ask 
what we need, longs to hear his children come to him in relationship to him. Fifth and finally, why does God require our worship? Why does he require our worship? And here I have three answers for you. Here they are. Number one, it is our highest duty to worship God alone for in him alone is the fullness of infinite perfection. It is our highest duty to worship God alone for in him alone is the fullness of infinite perfection. It is our duty to worship God. Goodness, you remember the Pharisees complaining about on, on the, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem and they were throwing palms down in front of him and, 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 the, and the crowds were, were praising him and the Pharisees complained about this. Tell them to be quiet, he said. Remember how Jesus responded? If they don't praise me, the rocks would scream in praise of me. The, the, the whole creation must give glory to God because God deserves all glory, honor, and praise. It is our highest duty to worship Him. Secondly, it is our greatest delight to worship God alone. It is our greatest delight to worship God alone, for from Him alone do we receive the fullness of everlasting joy and satisfaction that He has for us. It is from Him alone. So get the connection here between worship and us being satisfied. You remember, offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. See, thanksgiving implies we've received from God and we say, thank you, God, praise be to your name. As we are satisfied in him, our hearts then naturally, instinctively cry out praises to the one who filled us, satisfied us. John Piper's famous phrase is so right God is glorified most in us as we are satisfied most in Him. Third and last, it is our ultimate destiny to worship God alone. It is our ultimate destiny to worship God alone, for to Him alone are we drawn to know the intimacy of His glorious presence. Our future in heaven will be being in the presence of God forever, experiencing increasing degrees of the fullness and richness of who God is forever. Our destiny will fulfill what God designed in the first place. What is our purpose? To be filled with Him. Our destiny, what will it be? We will be filled with Him. It is our ultimate destiny to worship God alone. Conclusion, marvel then at the glory of God's supremacy. Be humbled by the glory of God's supremacy. Find your true joy and satisfaction in the glory of God's supremacy. And love and obey and worship God to the glory of His matchless supremacy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Bruce Ware, which was given at the 2004 Worship God Conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. 
Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.